Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the bi-weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? I am enjoying the sticky summer sunshine in London right now. Yeah, it's going to last for about two weeks, so you should enjoy it. Well, the thing is, like, it always seems to me that summers in London are warmer than like summers I would have had in Ireland growing up but it's always that it's like this kind of sweaty heat that because obviously there's no breeze there's no there's no water nearby I'm just like I am craving so badly you know when you go on holiday and you've got that like you've been in the sun all day you've been swimming all the rest of it you're getting ready to go out for dinner and you have what one of my best friends calls the pre-dinner crisp hour where you're just eating crisps and drinking a glass of wine and like cooling down from the day essentially I don't I don't have crisps before dinner oh my god that's the best you get all the the good flavor crisps that you don't get in the UK all of the like paprika flavored crisps and (laughs) humble flavored crisps that's that's the that's the vibe anyway I was just we were gonna go away to Portugal if we could obviously that is now no longer happening also because the additional cost of PCR tests before you leave when you're there when you're coming back is just like so extortionate but I heard that people were trying to travel with the regular NHS test but I thought everybody knew that you needed a PCR travel test yeah well this is the thing I mean I certainly hadn't looked into it until we were actually looking into it you know what I mean but it would be an extra four to five hundred pounds And so I was like, okay, well, resigned to now doing like a staycation somewhere in the UK. But it's just not the same. Like the UK doesn't have the infrastructure for just going downtown to whatever little village you're staying in or whatever town you're staying in, where will we go for dinner tonight? It's like, oh, a Weatherspoons or (laughs) Bills. Yeah. No, there are very nice parts of the UK, but it definitely doesn't beat a good European trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's put us off traveling now is just the complexity of it you know and people did travel to Portugal and then now they're like oh my god we need to get back and those are extra costs mm-hmm. so what would have been like maybe a sort of 500 600 pound trip you know you've got to budget double for that 100% that's it that was what actually one of my friends was saying she was saying you know the thing is four or five hundred pounds for PCR tests that's also your spending money in Portugal where you get a two pound glass of wine or in Spain or wherever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's like it grows the economy. PCR tests are not growing the economy. Yeah. And so I've had my vaccines now. Have you? I'm part of the elite because I'm double vaxxed and hopefully it starts to count for something. Like, oh my can God, I travel, I travel in peace? So jealous. Yeah. Yeah. What have I? I haven't had either yet, so I am absolutely so eager. Like I'll be straight down there as soon as it should happens. happen. It should happen soon, but I don't know kind of what's going on with the vaccines um, and what they're saying as well is that the day of freedom might be postponed. I don't think morale can handle that. Do you? Well, I feel like things are open now. Like what else? Okay, you can't eat inside, but I don't want to eat inside. To be fair, I say that I don't think morale can handle that. But actually, the UK and Ireland do really just take everything that they're given. You've said this before. It takes the most 
for anyone to protest, anyone to do anything. So even if it gets to the 20th of June and Boris is like, oh, actually, no, everyone will just grumble about it on Facebook or on Instagram and then that will just be it. So Yeah, but I feel like things are quite open. There's nothing that I want to do that is closed. No, well, yeah, I suppose that's the thing though, isn't it? It's like what you consider what you would want to do. Like my my requirements are fairly middling to low I'm like I want to go out for food I can do that yeah I can't really travel I do really want to do that yeah but yeah that's probably about the extent of it you're right yeah there are restrictions around traveling right so that is frustrating but you know we'll see how that goes I have to say and I'm so conscious of saying obviously I'm going to say on the podcast now so who knows how many people are going to hear me say I'm so sick of masks and I say it to Charles all the time obviously not going to stop wearing them because I don't want anyone to think I'm an anti-vaxxer or an anti-masker. But I just hate it so much. Like, you would think at this point... No, I prefer it. I prefer it, actually. I actually like going inside and putting on a mask, because people smell. People do smell, and people are gross. Yeah, this mask has actually saved me. So if I go inside, like, I'll go to the post office, I go and drop something off, I'll wear a mask... I'm not wearing a mask like 24-7. But if I go mm-hmm. inside, I feel a lot better if I wear a mask. God, you think it would be like second nature by now, but I still am like, oh, I forgot a mask. Like the most frustrating thing, having them in the wash, having them to hand. Because the thing is, no one's keeping their mask like neatly folded. Do you know what I mean? I always try and fold my mask in on itself so that the inside of the mask hasn't touched off anything except my face but I see people they're scrunching them they're shoving them in their pockets I'm like this is not hygienic you are just smearing it's not COVID bacteria but it's bacteria yeah but it's probably hygienic to uh just scrunch it into your pocket and like wear it and then not cough on people um, (laughs) than it is to just not have a mask true 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 you know the bar is very low like I'm not expecting everybody to have all this mask etiquette just like wear it (laughs) and and move on that's fair what have you been up to over the past couple of weeks not much really like I've caught up with a few people which is good enjoying the fact that the weather is nice but I haven't been up to like anything major to be honest. I feel like people are easing back into it. Yeah, people are. What about you? So the the thing that I wanted to chat about a little bit today as our kind of our intro topic is a book that I have just started reading called Pregnant Then Screwed. So someone recommended this, one of my husband's colleagues recommended it to him and I just got it at the weekend so I can't be like, oh, and this is exactly what it's about. But essentially what it talks about is the fallacy of maternity leave and maternity care and women in the workplace post-pregnancy, specifically in the UK. And so I didn't know this. I think that sometimes we can get a bit self-congratulatory in the UK because our first point of reference or comparison usually tends to be the United States. And so from like a healthcare perspective, from a maternity leave perspective, from an annual leave perspective, we are doing better than the US and we get so complacent about that but actually the fact is that we have got the third worst maternity leave in Europe and we've also got the second most expensive childcare in the world in the UK and I just found that really staggering because actually when you think about it then 
if you open up your kind of sphere of reference, you know, we all know that the Nordic model from a maternity and paternity leave or parental leave, I guess, more generically, is phenomenal. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, in the Nordics, uh, you get 18 months parental leave for one parent, then 18 months parental leave for the other parent, which essentially means that your child could be three years old before you even as a parent have had to broach the whole non-parental childcare, basically, which I think is super interesting. You know, we but then we also think about it from an annual leave perspective, which is very front of mind for me, because with exams and things like that, I'm constantly having to ration out when I can take annual leave because we don't I don't currently have any exam leave in my work. When can I take annual leave for things that are are meaningful, like my exams? When can I take annual leave for things that are just purely leisure focused? And when you think then about things like Southern Europe or, again, the Nordics, which literally close for July and August, because those are their summer vacation months. I think for me, as I've gotten older, I've realised like, wow, you know, the quality of life in the UK is really low. And when you think about this specifically in the context of, you know, women at work in general and maternity and how poor it is in the UK, put COVID on top of that, women are screwed right now. Pregnant then screwed, but you don't yeah. even have to be pregnant yeah. for sure. And it's really kind of disheartening because I think that it's something that we don't talk about enough. Yeah, but I saw something because basically somebody was telling me about the Pregnant and Screwed book. A colleague was talking about it last week. And then on the weekend, I was on LinkedIn and then I ended up seeing a post from the founder and the author of, of the book. And, and, and it's a nonprofit organization as well. And a woman wrote a comment saying how I think she didn't really have that much support around her maternity leave. And I think she's got a couple of kids at least. But she said, oh, well, we make these decisions and like we make the decision to have children. So we just have to own it and deal with it. So I... <laughs> and I was like, well, you're an enemy of progress. <laughs> like that's the perfect way of putting it because I think that you know I one would hope that if you make the choice to have children that you know you you are happy and assured that you made the right choice in that decision and everything like that but completely aside from that it shouldn't mean that your quality of life drops so significantly and you mentioned, you know, I think that people are waking up to the fact that we don't have a good quality of life in the UK. And I think that that is somewhat true in that people feel that they can allude to it, that they can talk about it. But I wonder, can they accept it? Like, and I don't mean this to bag specifically on the UK, because I think it's Ireland as well. Like there's this work-life balance that we have been conditioned to think that we're the ones who have got it made because you might finish early on a Friday. <laughs> and we, Jules and I worked at a place where we where we met. And they used that as a tool of coercion. Like it was a very strange thing. It was a very strange thing. And the worst part was you very infrequently finished early on a Friday and there would be no rhyme or reason to why you would or wouldn't. So you'd be sitting there after lunch on a Friday expected to work until 6 p.m you know and you'd be sitting there thinking I wonder will today be the day more often than not it was not the day and it's 
such a I was talking to my husband about it this weekend because it sprang to mind and I was thinking it was as you said a tool of coercion and such an unnecessary power play because no one was working until 6 p.m on a Friday because why would you be it's presenteeism at its absolute worst but again you kind of almost get Stockholm syndrome and you are feasting on the crumbs but you if you choose to have children and I don't believe that that should mean, oh, I should accept that I'm just never going to earn the same as my peers ever again. Yeah, or- I saw uh, I saw some data on LinkedIn where they basically put a chart up and they put like earning potential per child or earnings per child. And then the more children you had, your earnings would go down. And the women who didn't have children, their earnings would go up. But those women that don't have children there's still, a, there's still a, a gender pay gap, mm-hmm. right, with, with men anyway. And then it's just further compounded, you know, if you choose to have children. And this is, I think, an important component of it as well, because I think on a basic level, and this is more anecdotal, like it's not like I can cite a study for this, but I do think that because the bar is lower for men, men being parents, it's seen as a positive it's seen as a, oh, well, you know, this man is going to work harder to provide for his family. But because stereotypically women are seen as emotional caregivers and domestic laborers, as well as people in the workforce, perhaps, a woman having children is seen as a disadvantage because it's like, oh, your head isn't in the game. And it's just an interesting perspective that we believe that children can center a man's ability to work so much more, whereas it's a complete distraction for women. Yeah, it's actually interesting when you put it in that way. I think that I was in denial slightly because I've had successful women in the workplace who have children and got promoted modeled to me like I've seen it. But then, you know, just because you've got examples of two or three women that have been able to overcome all of these barriers doesn't mean that there aren't systemic issues. 100% and the issue is that if you don't feel empowered to say okay well listen I want a more like tangible model right I want to progress here's how I want to progress as well as having children and taking my maternity leave or whatever there's never a defined okay well this is what the step-by-step process looks like it becomes very arbitrary it becomes very kind of peripheral led things where your male peers may be told okay you need to do xyz and that is how you get promoted suddenly it's like oh we just need to see that you're a bit more of a team player we want to see like that visibility that positivity and it's you know that is feedback as well that's not specific to to women who are pregnant or you know leaving the the workplace for maternity leave or whatever it is just feedback that is often given to women in general men will be given more defined metrics to measure success and to progress than women will be, it becomes intangible. It becomes much harder to say, okay, well, I did X, Y, Z. If I am tasking you, for example, on being positive, that's what I need to see from you, Julia. I just need to see a bit more, you know, X, Y, Z. You can't ever tell me, well, I think I've been positive because there's no set definition of what that looks like. And and that's not a metric. (laughs) Not a metric. And it's only further compounded then when you are also you know, again, to use a a gender stereotype, but when you are also the primary caregiver for any children that you may have. And I don't know what the the solution is. I don't know what the solution is because it's a very serious problem. 
And I think for me, it's just about, you have to really, I think reading books like Pregnant Then Screwed, and there's also a community called My Bump Pay. Oh, I've heard about them. How weird. I'd never heard about them until this past week, and now you're mentioning them. Yeah. So check out My Bump Pay, because that's actually a really good platform, and a few of my friends have used it, and then it's all about kind of like budgeting for like your maternity, the handovers that you do, like planning, just so you can kind of get these things in order and kind of frame it in your mind because I think people don't realize what an impact it has mm-hmm. on their life and their career and there are steps that you can take to just empower yourself a bit more. I also think that you need to be able to have a very frank discussion with your partner which hopefully if you're thinking about having children you're able to do but a frank conversation about you know, expectations, by the way, I want to go back to work. And by the way, here is what I would like my earnings to be. I'm not accepting that I'm just never going to be promoted again, because I'm going to have children or who is going to be our primary caregiver? Are we going to have an au pair? Are we going to, you know, send our children to nursery? I think the thing that has blown my mind so much is, as I said, that the UK are the second most expensive country in the world for childcare, just after New Zealand. But why does that blow your mind? The UK is the most expensive for so many things. I think because, again, it's that self-congratulatory narrative that I just assumed, you know, you hear about women in America giving birth and then going straight back to work. And not that I think that that is a model that I would want to emulate, but more that they are not then paying about 1500 a month for childcare. And that's what I think about all the time in, you know, my own personal experience, my own kind of like anecdotal evidence about my husband and I talking about having children. I just always think, how is everyone affording to have children? Like that is the thing that I think about all the time. Because if you have two kids, childcare is not discounted. Childcare just doubles. Yeah, and that exactly. again is like, I don't know why I thought I would be getting a two for one special or something like that. But like you said, it's very important to have those frank conversations with your partner about how this is going to go. Because work, yes, there's the financial part of it. But there's also just making sure that even if you are a mum, you still have something for yourself, you know. And so it's really tricky. You know, I see it more and more on LinkedIn with like, you know, these moms and they go off and they have their kids and they struggle to find that flexible working. And I'm hoping that with COVID, there are more opportunities for flexible work. The challenge you have is that even if, you know, we talk about the future of work and all of these things, the people that will benefit from it, it's always going to be, you know, middle class, upper class, etc. There is no flexible work for women that work in the NHS. There is no flexible work for essential workers. Mm -hmm. And that for me is a real issue, right? Because, you know, yes, childcare is expensive, but if you get to a certain point, you can kind of, you know, and it's funny actually, because when I started working, there was like a lady and her husband was actually a hairdresser as well. And she was kept banging on about how they couldn't afford to have a second child. And I was like, what is this woman talking about? Obviously, I'm a graduate. I'm not understanding what she's talking about. They Mm -hmm. have one kid. She's banging on about how she'd like to have a second child, but they can't afford to have another child. And there are so many articles about, you know, uh, affluent families, like, you know, families that earn around 250, 300K and 
talk about being broke or talking talking about that squeeze mm-hmm. um you know and there is a there is a squeeze there is a squeeze at whichever level you are because obviously the services that you want will reflect the level that you are at mm-hmm. and there is a squeeze and it's very very expensive and yeah I think all you can really do to mitigate it is to stay woke <laughs> Yeah, I do think that part of that comes with age as well, because I remember a few years ago being with my sister and she was basically saying to me, you know, do you think that you and Charles will have kids? And I was like, yeah, you know, it's something that we talk about. I don't think that like it will if we have children, it will be something that we plan to have. We're not in a position where we'll leave it up to God, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I said, but if we do have kids, you know, we we probably would only have one. And my sister, who was in her early 20s at the time, was like, "Mm, I just think that's selfish. Because once you have two, like, they kind of take care of each other at that point. And I was like... I think one is, anyway, everyone's got to make their own lifestyle choice. Totally. And also, you know, that's... But one, for financial reasons, I feel that that's a shame. That's unfortunate. Totally. But then also... a. I think that there's also an argument or a discussion to be had for if you have more than one kid when you can only afford to have one kid and then they never are able to go on the school tours or there are oh, certain Oh, it's not that bad. Of course. I mean, come on. You're not no, going to be in the poorhouse. That's it. That's it. Yeah, well, children. of course you don't want to go to the poorhouse. But, you know, things are expensive. You know, school fees are expensive. Childcare is expensive. Sports are expensive music lessons, whatever it is, like all of the things that you don't factor into actual children costs are costs. And I thought like when my sister said that at the time, it really cracked me up because I was like, yeah, okay. But actually the kids don't actually take care of each other. You still take care of the kids. They may keep one another amused, but your three-year-old is not taking care of your one-year-old. So yeah. Exactly. And I think you have to think not everything will go exactly how you plan, because if you need to have I I tell everybody now, like if you're 25 plus, you should be freezing your eggs. Well, actually, so just on this, because I had this conversation every year in the lead up to my birthday, I have such a freak out. It's so cliched. I hate it about myself, but I have such a freak out about my mortality. And when I was turning 27, I was like, oh, my God, I need to freeze my eggs. And actually, one of my friends said, who is an obstetrician she was like freeze your embryos it's pretty much the same price but you've got a far greater chance of success so if there is anyone who's isn't the embryo when it's already been fertilized yes like okay but that's if you're in a relationship if you're not in a relationship yeah yeah fair point yeah absolutely yeah if you're in a relationship if you're married you know I would recommend that you freeze the embryos but if not you freeze your eggs and obviously those those come with additional costs. Some of us don't pay those costs because our companies cover them. Oh my Amen. God. Are you <laughs> yeah. serious? Yeah. That is a good position to be in. Yeah, wow. Very good position to be in. The fertility, like the, the egg free thing, adoption costs, like anything related wow. to yeah, you get that covered. So obviously if you're in that circumstance, absolutely take advantage and go and freeze your eggs. But I or your embryos. But I think it's all about options and choice mm-hmm. because you could be in your 20s and think oh I don't want children you could be in your 30s and think I don't want children and you could reach a point where you feel like I do want children and so obviously the younger your eggs are or your embryos yeah. are the better for you but 
that's obviously another cost to, for people to think about. And then, of course, if you've got a child that requires additional needs, there are additional costs, right? I'll be associated with that. And that also makes childcare even more expensive. And so I really do think it's crazy what women have to go through and what families have to go through just to have a family. Just to have a family. And then I think about... I also have such a lack of perspective when it comes to myself and when it comes to, I assume that everybody else knows what they're doing. I know that that's a very millennial trait or actually maybe it's not, maybe it's just a very human trait. I assume that everybody else knows what they're doing and I must just not be in the loop because I had this conversation with my dad where I was thinking my, my mom and dad were 29 when they had me and um, I am now 29. And I was just saying to him, like, I can't believe someone let you leave a hospital with a child like that is how I if if Charles and I were suddenly not suddenly because you've got a nine month gestational period (laughs) but like to be suddenly in charge I'd be thinking who's allowed this to take place like what adult has signed off on these two idiots taking care of a child and my dad was like that is literally what we thought as well I was thinking I'm a child who's allowed me you know so that lack of belief in yourself ultimately is always there yeah I think people just crack on with it because I was Mm -hmm. talking to a colleague and he was saying that you know he's in his late 30s now he had his first child at 17 and he was just a boy oh my god that is that's a kid yeah you know and him Mm -hmm. and his wife now they've got three kids and they had their first you know in their teens basically and it all worked out fine and it all but and that's the point isn't it so much of the time it does just work out I think that possibly now when you've got to think about things like you know if you've been in the the workforce for a certain amount of years you suddenly are thinking about your career in a much more meaningful way like yeah not that it's easy to have a child at 17 or 21 or 25 or whatever but because you are not necessarily on a trajectory at that point there aren't these other components that you are also trying to think of and factor in. And particularly if you're ambitious and we talk about career ambition a lot on this podcast and, you know, what, what women and what people in general can do to, to network and, and build the career that they are looking for. That's the thing. I think nowadays women are more ambitious. And so before, you know, getting married, having the kids straight away, having a couple of kids straight away, that was really the goal of the marriage. And mm-hmm. the goal of the marriage was to be, you know, a housewife and to be a mum. And that was really it. Even if people had additional ambitions, they didn't necessarily pursue them. But now it's very, very different. And I haven't, I'm not an expert on the subject, but from what I've read, if you have children before 25 or after 35, you're less impacted by the gender pay gap. Really, that's yeah. Because before before twenty five, like you know, if you if you have a kid at like twenty twenty one, like you said, at that point in your career, anyway, even if you're working, you don't you haven't necessarily put yourself on a specific path. Mm-hmm. So then you, your kid goes to nursery and primary school or whatever, you go back into the workforce, and then you can actually make up that time if you're below twenty five, and then if you're after thirty five, you have if you have a child after thirty five you've got enough experience and you've got more leverage interesting I think maybe those are just those are professional women that they've assessed right but you have got more leverage because you've got more experience maybe you've got some leadership experience you're on a specific path before you go off and have your child so you close that gender pay gap that's really interesting because I wonder if part of that also is stemmed 
by the fact that post 35, you also just have a little bit more, not necessarily, well, I guess lived experience, but also just, you know, the kind of confidence that comes with age that, you know, when you mentioned, you're you're able to leverage that better. You're able to say, you know what, maybe I haven't eradicated my imposter syndrome, but I have enough perspective on what my imposter syndrome is doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you maybe have some skills where if you do go back to work part time, like you're a consultant, you're this, you're that. You know, I see women on LinkedIn now where, you know, they know they've got two children or they've got a, couple, a kid and they want flexible working. They put it out there. People support them. Opportunities come. Right. Mm-hmm. So it is probably by that point in your career, you're more visible and you're more vocal. Well, interestingly, I'm actually doing an assignment on this at the moment and talking about flexible working options and presenteeism because presenteeism is one of the big issues that organisations face. People believe that you can only do meaningful work if you are in the office. Um, That is inaccurate, but it's less specifically um, profit-driven. So it's not that you create more profit when you allow flexible working full time. But what you do eradicate is attrition rates because people are less likely to leave their jobs. If it's the case that you are giving me the ability to work flexible or flexibly, excuse me, I can be in the office sometimes, but I can also drop my kids off at school or I can leave early to go and pick my kids up. And, you know, you know that I'll be on email later or I'll make my workday work and I will get the work that I need to get done, done. I am less likely to leave you as an organization. So you as an organization are less likely to be constantly in the training cycle. Because I know what I'm doing, and I'm progressing within your organization, because you are giving me the freedom and the respect that I deserve, because I am someone with experience, which is why you've hired me. And it becomes a super circular thing that organizations and I think this actually is a good segue to to what you mentioned that you wanted to speak about in the podcast today organizations or kind of work structures can infantilize and be like oh well you have to do this and if you don't do this then you have to do that and there's a certain power in saying I'm going to remove myself from that dynamic and I know that you had mentioned Naomi Osaka and pulling out the French open and that I think is a great example of her being like you know what actually some of these rules are completely arbitrary and what I need to do is prioritize myself and what I know is best for me I just give Naomi Osaka so much credit I've already I mean if you listen to the podcast you know that I rate her I rate her a lot uh, not only because of her talent but I just rate the fact that she's out there living her values and being so young and so vocal about her values and it's very interesting in the context of Naomi Osaka because she you know, she said it herself when she's opened up around why she didn't want to do press at the French Open. And that was all around, you know, the anxiety that it induces, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that she thought, you know what, this time around, no, I'd rather not put myself in that situation. And then the leadership team at the French Open and all these other tournaments are like, you know, we pay you, you have to do it. And then she said, you know what, I'll leave you guys to focus on tennis and withdrawing. And I was talking to someone at work about this and they said, oh, you know, I felt that her initial statement just was very wishy-washy. But then after she opened up around, you know, her mental health issues and why she felt that she didn't want to do the press, they were a lot more sympathetic about it. For me, as soon as she said, I really don't want to do press this time around, 
so police can have that space. I thought that that made sense. I don't know why people feel that people can't create a boundary. <laughs> Once you create the boundary, I thought, oh, that really, really makes sense to me. And also, and I don't know if you're following it, but it's in the context of everything that's happening on the internet with Kwame Brown. I don't think I have been following Oh, that. gosh. The Kwame Brown situation is another situation. But the Kwame Brown was an NBA athlete that was drafted straight from high school. And he was the number one pick from high school. And he ended up playing on the Wizards with Michael Jordan. Okay. And he was like 18, 19 years old. And there's all this discussion around Kwame being a bust. Like the media gave him a really hard time saying his career was a bust. He didn't live up to the expectations of a first round draft pick. This has been going on for 20 years. All this like bullying and bashing of Kwame Brown. Now Kwame Brown is on YouTube and he's like going after all the media that make fun of him. Yeah. Wow. And he's got an ex-teammate who basically wrote an article for The Guardian about what Naomi Osaka was going through. And if you're following the Kwame Brown situation and if you follow the Naomi Osaka situation, you see that they don't treat these athletes like human beings, especially when they are black athletes. Mm-hmm. And what Kwame Brown was saying is that you've had athletes from Europe, like white European athletes who joined the NBA where there was this huge expectation around them and they didn't have the career that people thought they did. But nobody speaks about them in the way they speak about someone like Kwame Brown. Mm-hmm. We'll just use Marie Sharapova because she's she's the the one that I remember. Like if she said, you know, um, you know, I'd rather not do press at the French Open. Would the reaction have been as visceral as it was? It was it was that paternalistic. Actually, you know, it was very much like we own you. How dare you? I was going to say that exact same thing, because I'm sure that, you know, Sharapova probably would have received some criticism. But there is like an additional component, I think, to the Osaka coverage where it's how dare you? think that you can dictate as you said your own boundaries and obviously Piers Morgan is having absolute field day over I didn't this. even open up the links about what Piers said because I was like this guy is I'm not giving nuts. him the clicks yeah, yeah I'm not giving him the clicks but did you see what he said what, tell us so what he, said. he was basically like pampered little princess you know spoiled brat all of this kind of stuff I was talking to my husband about it my husband was like I genuinely believe that Piers Morgan doesn't even believe this shit Mm. you know that he's got a team of five people and that they are just like who will we be outraged about today what what stance will we take which you know what I can believe it to a degree but I do fundamentally think that you know we were having this discussion in the context of are there any celebrities that you really hate because I've got celebrities that I'm a fan of celebrities that I would go so far as to say I stan but there aren't very many that I I hate, I don't really like Jeremy Clarkson and I really do not like Piers Morgan, but I've got an exhaustible amount to say about them. Piers Morgan seems like he gives those Donald Trump vibes where it's like he wants to be accepted by the celebrities. He wants to be in that sphere. But unfortunately, where he's made his notoriety is slagging them off. So he will never get their acceptance. He has to rely on the the Joe Soaps or whatever being like, yeah, well done, Piers. Someone telling it as it is. But he's got no one to hobnob with. Like, yeah. he's got no powerful circle around him. Yeah, I think Piers is so, so problematic. And I think what we're seeing with Naomi Osaka, if you compare her to, like, the Williams sisters, 
I think the Williams sisters, not that I think, the Williams sisters were terrorised. The French Open as well is incredibly toxic. Serena Williams playing at the French Open, being called the N-word as she's playing tennis, her family members being called the N-word as they go to, to their seats. And with Naomi, she's actually, like, Clay is not her preferred um, her preferred surface as well when it comes to tennis, right? So I could see the anxiety that that brings because she's obviously a US Open champion. There's all these expectations around her. She's the highest paid female athlete right now. And I give her parents a lot of props in terms of how they've set up this because she's a business, right? And I think that her parents have set, set it up in this really amazing way. If you think about the Asian base that love her, right? She she plays for Japan. So she set up her business in a way that I can actually walk away from this. It doesn't impact me mm-hmm. because it's in a way where it's like, okay, my audience are Gen Z and millennials. I've got a huge Asian fan base that like love me and support me. Everyone on on, on Instagram and everyone on social media understands where I'm coming from. It's mental health month. <laughs> if you guys don't get it, it's on you. And, well, and that's what happened. And also it it just really highlights again, and this is what we're saying, you know, kind of throughout this episode, so many of these rules are completely arbitrary. They're so Oh, uh, it turns out you have to do press after every match or else we'll fine you. And then, you know, it's the same in cycling. If you are wearing the yellow jersey, you have to do press. And otherwise you get fined. And it's kind of like, but where are these fines going? What is this fine paying for? It's just a nifty way for the organization to make more money. And I understand that, like, once upon a time, these rules had merit. But as you said, like, you have to age in tandem with your audience, unfortunately. And I have never, and I'm a wishy-washy tennis watcher at the best of times. And it was sports in general, to be honest. But that kind of format is also so reiterative. Those questions, you can understand that even if it wasn't from a mental health perspective, which is legitimate enough in and of itself, even if it was just like, you know what, I don't think it's an efficient use of my time to sit and be asked the same six questions and have, and, you know, I'm sure you've seen that clip that's um, been circulating of, uh, Venus Williams when she's asked you know what what is your response to this and she says I know that the people asking me these questions would never be able to play as well as I do so they can't hold a candle to me and that's it and I thought that that was that was great and I thought that it was so interesting but I also did think although you have to be in a very secure frame of mind to be able to you can tell yourself that but whether or not you'd believe it or whether or not you'd still end up hurt when someone says you played really badly today. Can you tell us why? Why, yeah. But they all have, and, and everyone has a different reaction to this type of treatment, right? Everyone has a different reaction to it. And with the Williams sisters, they handled it really differently. Like Serena was saying, like, yeah, it made me, it made me stronger. And that's fine. I think if that's how you handle it and, it, and going through that abuse, basically, if that makes you, like, stronger, I think power to you. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that, people have to go through that now like in 2021 you know I hope that we're getting to a point where people don't have to go through that and the race element on this is very very important because when it comes to black women black women don't get a break 
And so that's why for me, as a young black woman out there doing her thing, representing Japan, representing Haiti, I give Naomi so much credit because with black people, the whole mindset is like, got to get through it, got to get through it, got to get through it. Like, you just feel that you have to always be excellent. And it's for her to come out and say what she said, that the, the vulnerability that she's shown, a lot of black women feel they can't show that. Right. A lot of black women, a lot of mixed women feel they can't show that level of vulnerability and it's not been modeled to them. So to have someone like Naomi model it to them. No, I don't need to be a strong black woman. That's not me. I'm an introvert. This makes me incredibly anxious. I just want to play tennis and go home. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but it's so interesting when you say she's legitimately allowed to be like, I want to play tennis and then I want to go home. It's strange that we are trying to make her something that, you know, why suddenly is an athlete's ability to speak publicly about their mental health or about the game they just played, whichever, why is that a component? Why do we need people to kind of self-flagellate themselves Mm. And obviously she's a star, right? So it sells yeah. papers, right? This is a business, it's about money. So I, I understand, but then, you know, you have to kind of develop a format that has moved with the time and you have to have a bit more empathy because if the association, the way they came down on her, like a ton of bricks, like it's in your contract, bitch, <laughs> basically, <laughs> um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. And I'm reading... Um, the anthology that was put together by Tarana Burke and Brené Brown. And it's called um, You're the Best Thing. And it's really amazing. And I I have so much, I love Brené Brown, you know, and I had Brené Brown's definition of love read at my wedding. So she's someone that I hold in really high high esteem. Um, And she was saying that, you know, she's done her best to make her vulnerability work as inclusive as possible, you know, but she did feel that there wasn't really any focus on the Black experience at all. And so what she's done with this anthology, what her and Tana Burke have done with this anthology is given these black writers the opportunity to kind of explore vulnerability from the black perspective. And a couple of the articles I found really interesting. And one of them was around being black in the ivory tower and how you can't have a bad day. You can't talk about your mental health, especially if you're black, if you're a black woman, you have to be all about the vibes. You have to be extrovert. You have to be fun. And you have to perform way better than everybody else. You know, this this lady, uh, the writer, got to the point where she was like, no. And I'm seeing it a lot now. I even watched a video this morning on uh, on YouTube with this, this black girl. She lives in L.A. She's been working for like 10 years. She's in her like early, like 30. She's 30 years old now. And she was saying how, you know, I quit my job without having a job. And she quit her job because she felt like, she was overworking. She couldn't set boundaries. You end up doing an, a whole other job, you know, but not being compensated for doing all this extra work. And what I found really great about this video in particular was that she was saying that I didn't love myself enough to say no. I didn't love myself enough to set those boundaries. And that's important, right? It's internal work that you do that allows you to be able to say no. Totally. And also it's the uh, internal work that allows you to say no, but internal work that allows you to just do nothing. 
And also because if you do enough extra things, then it becomes an expectation that you just do those extra things. So the elusive <laughs> praise that you're always yeah. working towards, yeah. it becomes more and more rare anyway. So it's like it's your your tolerance threshold almost. It's like, oh, okay, so now it's not like good work, Juliet, isn't actually really enough. I'm looking for a good work, Juliet, in front of the whole team. But that's even harder to get. So I have to do X, Y, Z to get that. And the goalposts just are continually moving because the fact is that if you weren't doing it, they would have to pay somebody else to do it. Yeah, but it's very important as as women in general to really get comfortable with having difficult conversations and setting boundaries, whether that's just protecting your mental health and your peace in the workplace or, you know, we've talked about maternity and how that shakes up your world, right? It's very important to kind of do that work on yourself where you know your worth and you can speak it. Mm-hmm. Because nobody is thinking about you and your worth. Everyone's trying to get through their own life in their own day. Yes. And I think that, so the, the short term solution is to try and have a more open dialogue about it. Like, obviously, the systemic change that needs to take place is going to take a lot longer. You may just have to leave the UK. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Um We would love to hear your thoughts on this because I do think it is something that so many people who are of the this kind of podcast demographic are thinking about and talking about their own personal lives. So would love to know more about what you think if you know someone who is maybe trying to navigate these kind of issues of boundaries and self-worth and, you know, planning for the future. Please share the podcast with them. Yeah. And you can find us on social media at Jules Phoebe. But thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.